All right, good morning. We are fully into summer, yes? Yes, absolutely. Well, if you were with us last week, you know that we started in Isaiah 56. So grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Isaiah 56 through chapters 59. We are going to spend, I said it was going to be two parts. It's going to be three parts. We're going to go to next week as well. We made, it, we made it through two of the three points on your sermon outline today, which is better than we did last week. So we're just, we're progressing, we're learning, all right? So uh, we are gonna look at these chapters. We've been working through the book of Isaiah. We're working through this section now in the, in the 50s, uh, which is just some of the richest uh, of all of Isaiah. I, I don't know if you've enjoyed, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, the whole book, but Isaiah 40 through about 60 is just so deep and rich. And so we're in 56 through 59, and we are talking about what it looks like to become the type of church community that God calls us to be. So if you recall, last week when we jumped in, we saw that in Isaiah 56, verse one, the very first words is God saying to his people, okay, I have sent the, the, the true and better servant, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. In Isaiah 53, that was the prophecy talking about him there. And then Isaiah 55 uh, Ian taught us about this wonderful invitation that God extends as a result of the work that is done by the servant in Isaiah 53, to come and, and partake of food with no cost. You know, come if you're thirsty and have drink with no cost. Like you are invited to the table of God because of what God has done through his servant, his son, Jesus Christ. And then beginning in chapter 56, he begins to talk about, okay, now those of you who come, let's talk about the type of community you are to be. And so he begins in Isaiah 56, verse one, by saying, I want you to practice justice and righteousness. And then he's gonna begin to unpack what that looks like throughout all of these chapters now, 56, 57, 58, 59. And so we're spending a little time reflecting on what does it look like to be a community of faith, to be a church, to be a, a family that understands uh, who God has called us to be. And so we spend a little time doing that. And if you remember last week, I tried to, offer you this idea, and I'll say it again this week, this is kind of our driving premise. It's that uh, it is pivotal and perhaps the most important thing that we can do to accomplish God's mission in our lives is to be a part of forming a church that, that offers a different and better way of life than the, than the culture that surrounds it. Maybe I can say that more simply, I can say it this way. It is a cause worth giving your life to, to be a part of shaping a local church family. Now, that may be foreign thinking to you. You may be thinking like, no, I mean, like the cause of my life is, is to make disciples. I've read the Bible. I know that's right. And I totally agree with you. It is uh, to make disciples for Jesus. But what I want to say to you is that the, most, the, the way to be most effective in that calling to make disciples is not to just be a great evangelist. It's not just to be a great neighbor, although that's a good thing. Those are both good things. It's not to know a lot of Bible. That's a good thing as well. But perhaps the most important thing that you can do to accomplish the mission of inviting people, that Isaiah 55 mission of inviting people to come home to God, is to be a part of shaping a church, to be a part of a local church community. I think most of us don't think that way about church. We think of it as a place that is kind of um, tangential, right? It touches up against the mission of our lives, right? I've got a mission, and the church, I come and I kind of get fed to go do that mission, uh, right. By the way, I recognize in this, I'm assuming that you have believed at this point that, that God has called you to be a part of making more and better followers of Jesus. All right? Now, if that's not you, uh, perhaps on another day we'll talk about why that is the mission for everyone who's a follower of Jesus. Um, but I'm just going to take that as an assumption for today anyway. Okay? And so if we've believed that, then the thing I want you to recognize is that you being a part of a church family, like deeply integrated into the life of a church family so that you shape it. 
uh, and it shapes you, that is pivotal to you accomplishing that work of inviting people to the table of God. Now, here's why I say that, okay? I recognize that, like I said, most of us, I think, think of the church as a place we go to get equipped to do our mission rather than seeing shaping the church community, the local church that we are a part of, as, as pivotal to that mission, as a, as a pivotal part of that mission. Uh, I want to flip our thinking to that, if I can, a little bit. And one of the reasons I say that is this, is, you know, historically in our country, we have lived in a, in a relatively Christian context. And what I mean by that is this, is that sort of the Christian ethic has shaped the way we think about, you know, morality. Uh, now, you know, that, that's a different question than was America a Christian nation and its founding or anything like that. I'm not asking that question. I'm simply asking, I'm simply sort of uh, leaning into the idea that a Christian ethic often has shaped our version, our vision, our understanding of morality as a culture at large in our country. Uh, that is no longer the case. And so we live in what we, what, you know, scholars, what theologians would call a post-Christian context, right? Uh, there have been plenty of post-Christian contexts throughout the history of the world. We are now, I would argue, living in one of them. And here's what I would say. In the history of America, we've had the luxury of thinking individualistically about the mission that God has given us, right? Because in a majority Christian context, you can think, okay, uh, I, I have this calling, I have this mission, therefore I'm sent out to do that, but I don't have to think much beyond that. In a post-Christian context, in a context where the majority of people do not ascribe uh, to the morality that the Bible calls of, for from us, in that type of a context, shaping and forming a church that offers a counterculture to the culture at large becomes paramount in accomplishing the work of God. You have to form a church family that looks different than the world around it and that becomes, uh, that offers a better vision for the way life could be lived than the culture at large is offering. You with me? You follow me? So in, in our day and age, I would argue that helping shape this church family into the kind of church God calls us to be is paramount to, to the mission God has called you to. Now, let me acknowledge something there because this is a church of about 3,000 people-ish, right? And so it might be easy for you to think that in a church community that size, you don't have much of a role in shaping it. And perhaps you're even thinking, like, I don't wanna have a role in shaping it. I love being anonymous. I love coming in, sitting quietly on Sunday, kind of not being involved beyond that. And I, you know, I feel, hopefully, I feel fed. I feel uh, encouraged, inspired, challenged. I, I hope all those things. Um, but beyond that, like, I'm good. I don't really want to become integrated into the life of the church uh, in such a way that I am shaping the church itself. So I, I wanna speak to that mentality. I recognize how easy it is to think that way, whether it's because you, you kind of desire that or whether it's because you just feel like, I'm, I'm one person among 3,000, like, what difference am I gonna make? Have you, felt, have you perhaps felt that? The thing I wanna encourage you is this. It is impossible for you to not shape the culture of our church. By virtue of being here and the way you engage with this church family, you shape it, right? Maybe a way to think about it is this. I'm not a musician, but if you think about it like a marching band, right? And if you've got 100 players in a marching band, but you've got, a really loud, you've got like a tuba that's off key or playing at the wrong time, you're gonna hear that, aren't you? Right? By virtue of the fact that you show up here, you've picked up an instrument, you are playing. And so you shape the sound that we make. You shape the noise that we make to the culture at large. It is impossible. So 
just to maybe rid you of the notion of the idea like I'm only one among X many, like I'm, I'm not really gonna shape this place. I want you to understand that you absolutely, every single one of us that calls this place home, this regularly here, we shape what we are as a church. When you come in on Sunday, the way you engage in worship shapes the way those around you engage in worship. When you live in your neighborhood, you shape the way those around you live in your neighborhood. Like it, it's literally impossible for you to not affect the culture of our church. Does, does that make sense? So it, I find that to be helpful because often I find myself thinking, I mean, I think this is a pastor, as the pastor of this place, so I think maybe, you might think it too, like what difference do I make? I'm only one person. And I'm the one standing here with a mic on every week, right? And if I think that, my guess is you might think that too. And the thing that helps me is to go back and go, oh, no, 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 no. Everything I do affects my church family. One of the things that was like an aha moment for me in my life, really, was uh, being in a small group of guys. And we were, we were studying the Bible together. We were living life together. We were accountable to one another, trying to help one another grow in our relationship with Christ and grow more like Christ. And I reckon as I was reading the Bible one day, I don't even remember where I was reading but I had this aha moment and I began to discuss it with the guys, uh, Zach and Brady and Bill, these guys that, that were really, really good close friends in Austin. And I said, it, dawns, it, it dawned on me today that I was, as I was reading uh, you know, about putting away sin, that one of the reasons I have to put away sin and fight against it and not continue to just excuse it in my life is because when I don't fight against my sin, I become less able to help you fight against yours. I become, I become like an anchor to you rather than like a, an engine propelling you and helping you move towards greater righteousness. So it helps me now to think when I'm tempted by whatever this thing is, my selfishness, my pride, whatever it may be, that rather than giving into it, because it's easy to go, well, if I only think I'm affecting me when I do that, then it's easy for me to excuse it and just do it. Would you agree with that? I find, I find that it is. I'm like, oh, well, I'm only hurting me is kind of like what goes, plays through my head. But when I realize, like, if I do that, I become less able to call these men that I really care about to righteousness. I become less able to, to say to them, no, we can have victory over sin. We don't have to walk in that old way of thinking. And I know that it's true because today I was tempted and God gave me grace and he, and he actually made me think about you. So that's the thing I found is I started thinking when I faced temptation, I started thinking about not myself. I started thinking about my brothers and sisters in Christ and remembering like, am I gonna help them now or harm them now? And that became a much better motivation to put away sin and to fight against sin. We affect one another. It is not possible for it to be any other way. So perhaps if it helps you to think about the pivotalness of, of being a part of shaping this church family, recognize that if you're thinking, I kinda don't want to, it doesn't really matter whether you want to or you don't. You do. And so my God, I don't say that to heap guilt on, I just say it to say, understand that reality. Uh, and maybe it will encourage you to, to draw deeper in. Now, here, here's the thing. I, I totally get, because I've been this guy, uh, wanting to be anonymous sometimes. Yeah, you ever want to be anonymous? I get that perhaps one of the reasons to, to come here is because you have the relative advantage. I mean, it's not a church of 50 people where we're gonna absolutely see every new person, right? Like, so there's some anonymity that you can have. And I just wanna say to you, I get it, and that's okay for a time. We're gonna keep inviting you deeper in.
okay? We're not a cult, don't worry, <laughs> right? We're a legit church, but we're gonna keep inviting you deeper in because one, you shape us, and two, we recognize that we, I don't mean me, we would love the opportunity to help shape you in your life. We're better together than we are individually. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the premise we're operating from. And, um, you know, so what we did then last week, and I'm not gonna go over these terms again, but we identified like, if we need to be this counterculture, this thing that offers a different, better way of life as a church than the culture that surrounds us in this post-Christian context, well, then what are the things that mark the culture around us? And we identified these five as being pretty strong. Relativism, individualism, materialism, racial division, and sexual freedom of expression. And we defined those, we looked at them, you can go back and if you need kind of a refresher on those, you can go back and look at them. But we identified those five and then we said, okay, if those, if those things are true then of the culture at large and we're to be a counterculture, then what kinds of things would a counterculture to that culture be? And these are the things that we said. It would be a culture that trains itself, it would be a church that trains themselves to know and apply truth. We'll put these up on the screen here. We talked about that last week. It will be a church that cares for the vulnerable, that has deep relationships with one another, that is diverse in race, age, and economic standing, that embraces biblical sexuality, that practices spiritual rhythms that create margin. Maybe an easier way to say that is that is less busy. A church that is great neighbors, filled with people who are great neighbors, and a church that practices disciplines of denial. Okay, so we're gonna cover the, the next two, numbers two and three there. So let's just dive right in then and get into the text. So get your eyes on Isaiah 56 if you can, and we're gonna look there just in a moment. And let's talk about caring for the vulnerable. So recognize, we've said individualism and materialism both shape us. Well, let's recognize then why it's so important to care for the vulnerable. At least one of those reasons is because if individualism shapes our culture at large, individualism has a way of making you self-centered. Would you agree with that? That's kind of what individualism does. It convinces us that sort of my success, my thing, my day is more important than you, your success, your day. I just tend to think me first, right? That's what individualism ultimately kind of tends to result in. The other side, uh, the other thing is materialism. Now materialism, what it does is it reinforces greed. It makes us greedy, right? I mean, that's, that's just what it does. If, if I value, if I prize consumption and material gain and material good, if I value those things, right, then what, what's that, that, what that is ultimately going to bring about in my life is it's going to fan the flame of greed. And it's going to grow that in me. So if we are marked by individualism and materialism in our culture, then you would expect to see a pretty high amount of greed and you'd expect to see a pretty high amount of self-centeredness. Okay? Now you can ask yourself the question whether you see those in the culture at large. The reason as a church, at least one of the reasons, to pursue caring for the vulnerable is not so much to indict the culture around us as it is to root those same things out of ourselves. To recognize that when we take up the call of God to care for the vulnerable, which we're gonna see in just a moment, that what we, were, what we are doing is attempting to to undo the effects of the culture on us. Would you say that at points you find yourself shaped by the culture in its materialism and in its individualism? I certainly would say that I do. And one of the things that happens is when I say, I'm going to commit my resources and my time and my energy to caring for the vulnerable, it just is like a hammer on my individualism and on my greed. 
on my self-centeredness and on my greed because I am going to be forced to put away resources and to think differently about how I'm gonna spend those resources. Things I would have spent on myself, I no longer spend on myself. I now spend on someone else. And so it has a way of shaping us. So when we say we're gonna care for the vulnerable as a community, yes, we do that in part because it, it, it proposes a vision of a better way of life to the culture at large around us, but we also need to recognize that it shapes us in the way that we should be shaped, yes? Okay, so let's look. There are four types of vulnerable people in these four chapters that Isaiah is gonna talk about. And we're just gonna kind of do a deep dive here into the text for a moment so we can see what those are and understand the variety of the kind of vulnerability that God talks about. Okay, again, in Isaiah 56, first verse, practice justice, practice righteousness. And then two verses later, verse three now, look at what he's gonna say. Second half of verse three He says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, this is so, I need to explain this a little bit to kind of help bring it to, Bring it to reality, but just key in on what he said. I will give you a name that is better than sons and daughters. Like for those of you who've become parents, is there much that is better than having a son or a daughter? It's pretty awesome, right? It's pretty awesome. And he is saying here, I'm gonna give you something better than that. And who's he gonna give it to? He's gonna give it to the eunuch. So you need to understand a little historical context here. In the ancient Near East, all the nations that surrounded Israel would have had religious practices that would have, or they would have had just political practices that would have required that certain men become eunuchs. In other words, to be emasculated. Now the reason for that obviously is a king might have uh, another man in charge of his harem. And if you're gonna be in charge of the king's harem, it might make sense that they would turn you into a eunuch. You can fathom the reasons for that, why, right? And then there are other religious practices that were just essentially like so, um, so involved in sort of a sex, cult of sexuality in the nations that surrounded Israel that essentially part of the worship of the priests of those regions would have been to be made a eunuch. And so the reality is that a person in the ancient Near East uh, where family was really everything. I mean, it was your, it was your source of insurance. It was your, your source of protection and provision. A person without a family, and a eunuch is a person who cannot have a what? Cannot have a family, cannot produce children. So that person, by definition, becomes vulnerable. So this, what Isaiah has his eyes on is he's talking about the eunuch and saying, God is inviting you into his house. He has in mind someone who's not from the nation of Israel, a foreigner who for, for any number of a variety of reasons possibly has been put in this position of vulnerability. They will have no family, no spouse to come alongside them and to walk with them in life. And in their old age, will they have children to care for them? No, there were no 401ks in this day, right? Your retirement plan was your kids. And so they have no one to look after them in their old age. This person is incredibly vulnerable. And look at what God is saying. I am going to invite you into my house. And not only am I gonna invite you into my house, I'm gonna give you a name that is better than having children. I'm gonna, basically, I'm gonna give you a monument in my house is what he says, a memorial. Now, I love that because what he's saying is, look, other people may have kids to say, did you see how great my mom and dad are? And you're not gonna have those kids. But do you know what you're gonna have? You're gonna have me saying, did you see how great my servant is? I, the God of the universe, am gonna speak of my pride in you. I will declare your legacy. Now, is that a pretty rich promise? 
And so he's saying, Isaiah is declaring, okay, here's a vulnerable person and God's people are to invite, they are, he is invited in by God into God's house to have a place at his table. So he must have a place among the people of God. Jesus reaffirms this, by the way, in Matthew 19, when he's doing this teaching on divorce and essentially saying like, divorce is not the will of God. There are very few exceptions to when divorce is something that should be partaken of. And the disciples' response, rather than go, that totally makes sense, we get it, because you created male and female, and you said bring them together, and let not you know, man put asunder what God has brought together. We totally get it, the two have become one flesh. That's not the disciples' response. The disciples' response is, that sounds really hard. It sounds like it'd be better not to get married, which is a weird response. But even weirder is Jesus not saying, no, 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 you guys don't get it. Let me explain. Okay, back in creation, here's God's intention, his idea, here's why divorce is not this thing that we should be partaking. He doesn't do any of that. Do you know what he does? He says, when they say it's better to be single, he goes into this conversation about eunuchs. And he says, there are some who have been eunuchs from birth. There are some who have been made eunuchs by men. There are some who have been made eunuchs for God's purposes in the world. Let him who can accept this saying, accept it. In other words, what he's hearkening back to Isaiah 56 and he's saying to be single, to, to, to have a life where family is not the result, you know, to have a wife and kids or a husband and kids as a, as a calling in life from God is a valuable thing in God's economy. Singleness is valuable. Paul picks up on that same idea in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, I wish that many of you would remain single as I am single because the single person is concerned about the things of God. The married person is concerned about the things of the world. And he's saying there is immense value to singleness. Therefore, people of God, you need to live with the people who, who this is their calling from the Lord in your midst because they will shape you and they are deeply important, so much so that, what does he say? I am going to give them a name, a reputation, a legacy. I'm gonna give them a memorial in my house. They are important to me. You, you follow me? All right, so that's the first person that is identified as a vulnerable person. The second is children. Look at 57, chapter 57, verse five. Now, the, he's transitioned from in 56, talking about the type of people that they are to be, to now indicting them for the things that they are doing that he's not pleased with. That's the transition we've made between chapter 56 and 57. So now in 57, what he says is this. He's, he's seeing the people of Israel have taken up the sexually immoral practices of the nations around them. And so he says this in Isaiah 57, 5. You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, in other words, you are pursuing uh, sexual immorality at every turn, under every green tree. Like, can you imagine if I said to you, you're pursuing sexual immorality under every green tree and you walked outside, are there a few trees around us? Yeah, that would be, you'd be like, you'd go, oh, okay, I get what you're saying. Like, I am pursuing this sexual fulfillment in ways that God did not intend Constantly, all the time. That's what he's getting at here. You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, and then look at what he says next. Who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rock. So again, he's seeing that they've picked up these sexually immoral practices. This has led, these sexually immoral practices have led to the slaughter of children. Whether because they were being slaughtered for 
the worship of religious idols from foreign nations who had this as a part of their practice to sacrifice children to false gods or to be left under the clefts of the rock, which is essentially to say to be left to die from exposure. Here's what you need to understand, church, what we need to understand. The greatest victims of a sexually immoral culture will always be children. Always. Without exception. Because the heart that says, I will pursue my sexual freedom and my sexual desires at all costs, and you can never tell me what I can and can't do in this realm of sexuality, the heart and mind that says that will find children to be inconvenient. They will find them to be worth sacrificing for the sake of their own sexual enjoyment. All of a sudden, the Bible doesn't seem like it was written thousands and thousands of years ago, does it? Any culture that worships sex and partakes of sexual immorality as a regular habit will find itself sacrificing children. They are vulnerable. The third type of vulnerable person that we find here in the text is in chapter 58, verses six through seven. So now kind of flip over maybe one page. The conversation is still very similar. God calling his people to justice and righteousness. And then he says this in verse six and seven. He's gonna highlight the poor and the oppressed who are not always the same, but often are the same. He says, uh, oh, I should set this up. His, his people are fasting, which is something his law requires of them. And they're saying, we're fasting. We're doing what you told us. So why aren't you like pouring out your blessings on us? They're looking around and saying, we're, we're not feeling very blessed right now. And we've been doing the things you told us to do. Like, what's going on? And God says to them, you are partaking of fasts, but not the kind of fast I want you to partake of. And then he says this. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? when you see the naked to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. So we've seen the types of vulnerable people that God highlights in this, the poor, the oppressed, children, and those without family as a place for protection and provision, <clears throat> for flourishing. So the question becomes, well, what do we learn from all this, right? If, if he's highlighting this and saying, be just and be righteous, my community of faith, my family of faith, and then he says, these are the vulnerable people among you. Well, we can learn a couple of things, right? It's it, and not overly complex. Number one, right, there's a lot of types of vulnerable people, not just one type, right? It's not just the poor who are vulnerable. It's not just one type of person who is vulnerable. The second thing that we can learn is that God calls his church to care for the vulnerable. Would you agree? He calls his church to care. Where you, where you see vulnerability, you are to step in Lean in, and we as a church are to be a church that cares for the vulnerable. Now, here's what I love about that, because he gives us a prescription of how we do that. I don't know if you noticed, what did he say about the eunuch? You will have a place in my house. I will give you a name in my house. And what did he just say about the hungry? Bring them into your home and feed them. So in other words, what he's saying is, you can't just care for the poor from a distance. You can't just throw money at the problem. 
You don't just care for the vulnerable by saying, hey, I'll give some money to this organization and they do it. He's saying, they must come and live among you. So in other words, as a church, when we think about how do we care for the vulnerable, the first thing that we should be thinking about is how do we invite the vulnerable to have a place here among us? Not how do we just care for their physical needs out there, but how do we say, no, no, we need you to come and we need you to have a legacy here among us. We need you to be a part of our body. We need, we need you to be integrated into the whole. That's what he's telling us to do. He's saying vulnerable people need a place and a voice at the table among the people of God. Now, why is that challenging? Why is that challenging for us? I think, well, yeah, let me do it just a brief why this is sometimes hard for theologically conservative churches. I'm gonna give a very brief history, right? So in the 1920s and 1930s, there's this rise of this movement in the church called the social gospel, right? Preachers like Harry Emerson Fosdick out of New York City begin to proclaim this and it's rooted, that social gospel, if you never heard that term, it's rooted in the idea that the Bible is not authoritative, that sin is not a reality in humankind, and that ultimately the goal of Christianity and of religion in general is to create a more just society here and now, not to prepare people for an eternity after the grave, right? And so there's a lot of reasons for that, but Fosdick and many other followers of his began to teach this and it began to take root, right? And so you get a lot of more liberal, theologically liberally minded people who are dismissing the authority of the Bible and they're ascribing to this social gospel and they're thinking about it and that's what they're pursuing. And now the reaction was you had theologically conservative people who said, well, so, sorry, you have this social gospel group of people who are saying, so what are we gonna do if we're supposed to build a more just society here and now because we're not worried about what happens in eternity? The point is not that. The point is what happens here. Then they're gonna do what? Care for the poor? Most of their theories were rooted in a Marxist sort of communistic economic theory about the way justice was brought about in a society. And so they pursued that. And so now you get a more conservative branch of the church who looks at that and says, that's absolutely no. Like we believe in the authority of the Bible. We believe in the sinfulness of humankind, of the need for a redeemer and of that redeemer being Jesus Christ, the only one who can redeem through the blood of the cross. And that ultimately it's not good to feed a man now and starve him for eternity, right? So we need to look to a better future of eternity with God and to proclaim his kingdom coming. And it's not all about what happens here and now. And so what happened is, because of this movement over here in the more liberal theological realm, you get this rejection or this wanting to distance ourselves uh, from this. And so what happens is this theologically conservatively minded group of people, rather than seeing somehow that the Bible calls those who believe in all the things that the Bible teaches and who believe in, a, in, in the coming kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, that those who believe that are absolutely called to do what Isaiah 56, 57, 58, 59 are calling us to do. And by the way, what Jesus talks about throughout the New Testament and the, the apostles in Acts, to care for those who are vulnerable. But rather than do that, they say, well, that smacks too much of or feels too much like the social gospel, therefore we're gonna be separate over here. And so for generations, you had church, theologically conservative churches that preached but did nothing to care for the vulnerable. Which is a huge part of why so often theologically conservative churches and minded churches that believed in the authority of the Bible were absent from the civil rights movement of the 1960s, just completely absent. 
and it was the theologically liberal churches that were deeply engaged in it, right? Which is an indictment on the theologically conservative church. It's an absolute indictment upon us. It is those who believe in the authority of the Bible most that should look to what the Bible prescribes and care for the vulnerable. It is not mutually exclusive. It is not mutually exclusive to believe that the Bible is authoritative, that we need to care what happens in eternity and preach the gospel, and that sin is a reality in the lives of every human being, and that we should care for the vulnerable. Those things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they cannot exist without one another, which is why the social gospel and liberal theology always falls apart in the end. Okay, this is a history lesson you didn't need or want, right? But there it is. All right, let's look at the second thing now. Having deep relationships with one another. All right, so to put it simply, our individualism, let's think about this for a minute, our individualism has disconnected us by convincing us that our personal pursuits trump our corporate ones. Our relativism has disconnected us from any authoritative tradition to which we might belong. In other words, every new generation says, I'm gonna find the truth for me, and I don't need to inherit any tradition that informs the way I think about truth, right? This is rampant. It's all the time I think about it. Uh, I just saw a movie. It was a great movie. It was a lot of fun. The Greatest Showman. Anybody seen it? Yes, yeah. Songs are catchy, right? Absolutely. Pay attention to what they're saying. Because in one of the songs, I don't remember the name of the song. I just remember it's the one with Zac Efron and Zendaya and they're twirling around on the rope. That's what I remember. Yes, some of you have seen this. Don't act like I'm the only one. Come on. (laughs) Right, And, and what are they singing? Like, we can change the stars. We can change our stars. And by the way, here's the trickiness of this. What they're talking about is the fact that, um, sorry, and they say, and no one can tell us who we can be. We will change the stars. For, in other words, we will determine who we will be. Now, in the context of the movie, they're actually utilizing that in a great way because they're acknowledging that an interracial couple, which was taboo to the culture at large, are saying that's something we should reject and we should say amen to that and we should agree with it, right? But the underlying premise that they're using behind that, do you see that what it is is relativism and individualism run rampant? No one else can inform who we are. First of all, that's a terrible way to live to think that you're going to have to build your own identity from scratch with each succeeding generation and that nothing from your past should ever inform who you will be in the future is just cruel, right? And it's also for, you need this term in your tool belt, the term chronological snobbery, right? That's C.S. Lewis's term. It's the belief that everything in the present is better than everything in the past. Anything that's new is better than anything that's old. And that's just false, And it's not helpful, right? We inherit things from those who precede us and we should identify that which is good and take it and grow in it, right? All right, so our relativism has done that. Our individualism has done it. Our materialism has convinced us that consuming is a sufficient replacement for meaningful relationships. That consuming, by social media, I mean, so Facebook is, I mean, Look, I'm not gonna bash Facebook, but I'm gonna say we're like the only generation that can have 5,000 friends and no real friends. It's, it's, it's friendship based on consumption is what it is, and it's rooted in our materialism, and it actually does not satisfy the soul. It leaves you more disconnected. 
but our materialism has convinced us that our racial disharmony has robbed us of the life-giving transformation of loving people who are not like us and thereby getting a practical taste of the justice and righteousness of God's eternal kingdom. And our sexual freedom has fractured the source of stable, sanctifying relationships that is the family. It's a lonely time to live. It is a lonely time to live. I, I, I won't read it to you because it's too long, but I read an article called The Legion Lonely by Stephen Thomas. And he was talking about uh, why men, he, men in particular, he was saying, but this is probably true for all of us. He's saying, why don't men have friends? And he was recognizing in himself as he's writing that, you know, as he's grown older, he recognizes, he says, I'm not antisocial, I love people, but the more, I, the more I am growing, the more I'm realizing, or the further in life I'm getting, the more I'm realizing how lonely I actually feel. And he alludes to a couple of things. He says, I have a work, he's a writer, so he says, my work requires me to be around people about eight hours of the 168 hours in a week. So the other 160 hours, I'm just at home, like, you know, in front of a screen by myself. And he's like, I've moved several times, so my transitoriness has left me with this feeling of disconnect. He's like, I've made good friends, but the longer I find myself just in my workplace by myself, like doing my job, I find that I start to get really um, kind of skittish. Like I'll go out on the street, I'll see people I know, and I will avoid them. I'll hide from them. And he goes on to just describe this immense sense of loneliness that he feels. My guess is he's not alone, that we've experienced a bit of that as, as well that there's this immense sense of loneliness that sometimes we encounter in our society. He actually goes on in, in the article to say, uh, I recognize that my use of social media only feels like sort of a, a Band-Aid on a broken femur, you know? I mean, it feels like I'm, I, he may have even said, kind of consuming a product more than you know, partaking of actual friendship. I recognize that it's not meeting the need I want it to meet. But then he does something interesting. He says, you know, I think a lot of, he's sort of prescribing why is this happening? And he says, I think it's happening because as we grow older, like my friends are getting married. He's like, I'm not getting married, but my friends are getting married and they have less time to hang out with me. Therefore, I feel loneliness. So he's actually kind of indicting the family as a reason why he's feeling lonely, right? And he's, uh, he's pinpointing another, a couple of circumstantial things. Like, I mean, like having a job, that's just part of being an adult, right? Having a job and working hard. Right? And so I don't think that any of those things are the reason for his loneliness. I think what he's missing, what Stephen Thomas is missing, is that the cultural waters in which we are swimming is actually the cause of his loneliness. That it's the materialism, the individualism, the relativism. Because you can have a job and a family and work really hard and a good number of hours, and you can have a family and you can still have really close friendships. That's very possible but less so if you are living your life along the lines of the cultural sort of wave of all the things that are shaping us. Now, if that's true, if that's, if that's a good illustration of kind of the way we feel, then what kind of counterculture are we to create as a church, right? That's the question we're asking through all of this, is what is the counterculture? Now, I'll be honest here. Isaiah 56 through 59 does not have a ton to say about the way we treat one another other than saying we should not oppress each other. So within the family of God, Isaiah 56, 57, 58, 59, sort of says don't do wickedness to one another. Don't do harm to one another. But we've got to get beyond just not doing harm, Yes into like, well, what's a fuller? So let's, let's move into the New Testament then for just a moment and let's just identify, we'll throw them up here on the screen. I'm just gonna give you the smallest taste 
of the kind of relationships that the New Testament calls for within the church. He says, wash one another's feet in John 13, 14, right? Like, so serve one another. Later in John 13, he says, love one another as Jesus has loved you. Acts 13, three, this is one of my favorite, that we are to fast and pray and discern God's will in each other's lives together. In other words, that we actually say to one another, like, yeah, we're we're going to figure things out together. We're gonna practice communal discernment. Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Romans 15.7, welcome one another. In other words, practice hospitality. Bring people into your home. Romans 15.14, instruct one another. I love the idea that we are to instruct one another. Like that when we engage around each other, it's not just supposed to be these sort of vapid, empty conversations, but that we're supposed to be offering one another an instruction in how to walk with God in our conversations with each other. 2 Corinthians 13.11, comfort one another. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. Now here's the deal. Here's my, here's my argument for you, right? All those things, the New Testament is just saying like this is the type of countercultural community you are to be. I, just, I, I think we need to recognize that Christianity without deep relationships in the church is really a theoretical Christianity, By that, I don't mean you don't believe true things about God and Jesus dying on the cross. What I mean is this, is that how do you know if you're growing more like Christ unless you have deep relationships where you're trying to practice these things? Like, I can convince myself all day long if I get up and go to my prayer closet and read my Bible. I can convince myself all day long that I'm becoming a more loving person, that I am bearing the burdens of others. I will convince myself that that is true. But unless I have deep relationships where someone can inconvenience me and say, hey, I need you to do this for me. I'm, I'm kind of up a creek here. Could you help me? Yep, you got it. I'll, I'll help bear your burden, right? Then I actually have a place to understand if my Christianity is theoretical or if it's a reality. The thing I've also found in terms of, you know, this coming to in terms of creating a counterculture that is, speaks about a better way of life to people, I'll tell you what I found. I have found, shockingly, that uh, my friends who aren't believers don't care very much about my theological acumen. And darn it, they should, because, you know, I got some things to say, right? You wanna talk theology, I'll talk all day, right? But I've, I've found again and again, you know what, they're, like, so my neighbor, Jay, one of my favorite neighbors I've ever had, he's just a great guy. He's a committed universalist, uh, he's a neighbor back in Austin, just a committed universalist. And we'd sit down over breakfast and have pancakes, at, you know, and we'd get in a conversation, I, and he'd talk about universal, and I'd say, Jay, but don't you see the inconsistencies of that? Like, these things are like Islam and Christianity. They teach such different things. They can't both be true. And he's like, well, no, and da, da. And we'd talk about that, and he would just essentially, I'd say, he'd just dismiss every one of my arguments, just dismiss them. But do you know what fascinated Jay? What always got his attention was how often members of our church were at our house, like, what are you guys doing in there? <laughs> weird stuff, sacrificing chickens. <laughs> no, we're just, we're living life together. We're, we're sharing a meal. We're talking about how to become more like Jesus because that's what we want, how to love our neighbors, right? Uh, we're just, that's what we're doing. We're seeking one another's counsel. He was always fascinated by the amount of authority we gave one another in our lives, so the fact that I was like, oh, yeah, when we, before we make a decision, we would pray with these people, like this group of, this life group that we had there, right? You know, 
Right? We'd, we'd pray together. We would say, what, do you, what does everyone think we should do? You know, um, that There was this communal nature. He was fascinated by it. The other thing, by the way, that he was fascinated about was, was our church's work among the poor. He was fascinated by how we cared for the vulnerability, for the vulnerable. Interesting, right? The two things we're talking about today. Those were just the things that Jay over and over again, he, he wanted to go on mission trips with me. He's like, I wanna go on one of your mission trips. I was like, you recognize we're trying to tell people about Jesus, right? <laughs> we're, we talk about it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I don't wanna do that. But I wanna build the houses. I wanna dig the well. I, like, I wanna do that stuff. I was like, okay, but we're gonna tell you about Jesus a lot. You know, he, he never ended up coming on one, but he just, kept, he, he always wanted to come on one. I always thought that was fascinating, right? He wanted no part of Jesus, but he was very interested in our work with the poor, with the vulnerable, and he was very interested in this sort of connectedness, this deep relationship that existed within the church. So church family, here's what I wanna say to you. You need to be deeply connected. If you've wondered why we emphasize life groups so much, why we're always talking about it, like being a life group, be connected. And it's not just because we want to say, hey, we got 100% of our people in life groups. No, we want a certain type of life group to form, right? We want groups of people that are deeply connected to one another, that are doing the things that we just saw on that screen, bearing one another's burdens and sacrificing for one another and discerning the will of God together and fasting together and praying together and, and being on mission together to help other people come to know Jesus and walk with them, loving each other's neighbors, not just their own neighbors, right? We're after that. And so if you wonder why we make such a big deal about it, that's why. Because we're trying to form a certain culture here that requires us knowing one another deeply and well. And the world will take notice. But when you live disconnected from the body of Christ with very minimal relationship within it, you really don't look any different than how the world looks in its relationships. And you might find yourself like Stephen Thomas feeling that sense of isolation and loneliness. But the church does not need to be that, nor should it be. You are invited to the table of the king. And guess what? There are other people around that table. It's not a table for one. Right? It's a big banquet table. A lot of people around it.